This is Gil Manser, welcoming you to a special Pulitzer Prize tribute on word-by-word conversations with writers at KRCB 91.1 FM or streaming online at krcb.org. On Monday, April 15th, Pulitzer Prize Administrator Sig Gissler announced the list of prize winners for 2013, including the following. In the realm of letters and drama, the fiction prize goes to The Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson. Making the prize even sweeter for Adam Johnson is the fact that the Pulitzer Committee surprised the publishing industry last year by purposely omitting any selection for best novel for 2012. To honor Adam Johnson's Pulitzer, Word by Word is reprising the conversation we originally broadcast April 4, 2012. Born in South Dakota and raised in Arizona, Adam Johnson earned a B.A. in journalism from Arizona State University, an M.F.A. in the writing program at McNeese State University, and a Ph.D. in English from Florida State University in the year 2000. He is currently a San Francisco writer and associate professor in creative writing at Stanford University, where he founded the Stanford Graphic Novel Project and was named one of the most influential and imaginative college professors by Playboy magazine. Did you get a center spread? My top honor. Aha. (laughs) He's the author of this novel, The Orphan Master's Son, which uh, Michiko Kukatani, writing in the New York Times, has called a daring and remarkable novel, a novel that not only opens a frightening window on the mysterious kingdom of North Korea, but one that also excavates the very meaning of love and sacrifice. Johnson's interest in the topic arose from his sensitivity to the language of propaganda, wherever it may occur. His numerous awards and scholarships include the 2010 California Book Award, a Whiting Writers Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Stegner Fellowship. He was named Debut Writer of the Year by Amazon.com in 2002, and the next year was selected for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers series. Adam, it is so delightful to welcome you to Word by Word. Gil, thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. 95% of this book occurs in a country that actively prohibits outsiders from discovering and revealing its secrets. So how did you do the research? I noticed in the back that you had people who traveled with you to North Korea. That's right. What else did you do? I became fascinated with North Korea just as a reader. You know, when I write fiction, I usually read nonfiction. Um, I find it very stimulating in in a way that doesn't compete with what I'm trying to do. And I just started reading about North Korea. I remember reading The Aquariums of Pyongyang by Kang Chol Wan. And I guess like many Americans, I didn't really understand the history of the peninsula. Um, I didn't understand the degree to which they've been subjugated by the Japanese from 1910 to you know, the end of the war 35 years later. I um, didn't know about the, the gulag system and that it was alive and functioning and it was the – the worst prison system functioning in the world today. And so as I just kept reading books and articles, I became obsessed with the topic. Mm -hmm. So you said yourself woke up one morning and said, I'm going to write about North Korea and have my protagonist spend his life there. Well, it's an interesting question. When when does a writer really understand that he or she's writing a book? I use fiction to process things that I think about or that are going on in my life. I often write sketches or do voice pieces. And so I started playing around with propaganda. The idea that there would be a a single state-approved storytelling mode became fascinating to me, quite funny 
though also quite serious. And uh, the material just grew and grew. And I, I don't know if there was a day that I realized, oh, no, I'm going to mess up the next five years of my life writing on this book. But it, it occurred. One of the things, you opened the book with a, a radio, I guess you would call mm-hmm. propaganda announcement, which talks about what you know the great leader is doing that day, You know mm-hmm. whether he's opening a flower show or, or investigating the troops for something and what other uh, members of the government are doing. And then also sort of a, I guess you would call it a ongoing love story that happens between uh, one of the leaders of the the Mines, the director of The Mines and the uh, famous actress who evolved the star of all the North Korean movies. That's right. Well, you know, to speak to this notion of propaganda, you know, as, as I studied the country, I came to understand that in the early 70s, Kim Il-sung wired the nation with what's essentially cable radio. He was afraid that these um, domestic transmissions would be intercepted or possibly jammed. And so in every house and every factory floor – uh, it used to be in all the public plazas, there would be loudspeakers um, and under the guise of a civil defense system. That was the excuse for, for doing it. And there's no way to refuse this propaganda that comes into your house all morning and all evening. If you're caught tampering with a loudspeaker, it's an offense that could get you sent to a gulag along with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the more I read propaganda – and it's so mind-numbingly painful – to be force-fed lies that are of no value to you. It's boring, repetitive, and it's time-wasting. And I tried to conceive what it would be like to live under the weight of that every day. And I thought to try to capture North Korea, I had to get that dimension in the book. But how to do it without boring my reader? Right. I do find the propaganda quite absurd and funny as well. So almost all the propaganda in my loudspeaker voice sections – and they're small for the readers, um, contains humorous things that I really found. That you found when you were visiting or in research? That I found in reading uh, propaganda. The central newspaper, the Workers' Party newspaper, is called the Rodong Sinmun, and it's put out by the KCNA every morning. The Japanese are obsessed with North Korea. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they – How so? How how are they obsessed? Well, it's an interesting relationship. Um, They – you know, Imperial Japan colonized, you know, the peninsula and the north perhaps got the worst treatment in the deal. Um, but the Japanese conscripted 5.4 million slave laborers from from Korea to run the factories and so – in well, the, uh, they conscripted women to do other things. Oh, the comfort women, the killings, the starvation. They exported all the rice from Korea and left the Koreans to eat millet for for 35 years. And even when, you know, we dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those those were industrial towns where the Mitsubishi headquarters were. Those factories were filled with Korean slave laborers, not Japanese. So uh, there are lots of ethnic Koreans still in Japan and I think it's Japan working out its troubled relationship with what it had done by fixating on the strangeness of the north. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly enough strange things there to fixate on. There's no end of absurdities and actually one of my challenges in trying to find the human dimension of a place that's that's very difficult – 
to um, ascertain those qualities was to get past the absurdities, to try to leave a lot of that out as tempting as it is for a writer to bring those real-life things in and to mitigate the darkness. I tried to keep the the real-life research um, and the results it yielded as to the true perilous nature of the gulag system there. I had to tone it down a great deal because it just – while absurdity undercut the humanity of my characters, the malevolence of how people are treated there um, well, you weighed them down. Yeah, you mentioned, for example, that uh, there was this uh, propaganda that's you know, transmitted every single day, and the fear still mm-hmm. that's that the Americans are going to invade, or the Japanese are going to invade that's at any right. second. That's right. And you have to keep listening. At least the parents of one of the characters mm-hmm. insist they listen to it. Because they want to be aware if there's right. a warning coming. You know, if you think about the – from the North Korean perspective, for about a millennium, they've been a pawn of China, Mongolia or Japan, a, a possession that's tr- been traded through wars that were fought on their territory. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't known self-determination or independence for long stretches at all. Then you think of the way they were occupied um, for the – first part of the last century. Then World War II came. Um, then partition between the Soviets and the Americans. Then the Korean War. Then the rise of a totalitarian regime. It's it's a pretty dark century for, for the people of that nation. But also, from their perspective, they have had 60 years without a foreign invader um, ruling them. And for and in their perspective, that's a pretty great success. And in the Korean War, the Americans bombed Korea mercilessly. We had a fleet of planes designed to fight two global theaters mm-hmm. on, a, on a planetary scale. And we unleashed it all on a, a very, relatively small place. We bombed Pyongyang uh, in the middle of the war um, to the degree that only three buildings were left standing. And those memories are seared and they are real. And the regime, of course, uses that fear and perpetuates it as if it's a a, a current reality to keep control of the people. And they do that in so many subtle ways. For instance, we open in an orphanage. Mm -hmm. And every boy in the orphanage is named after a martyr. Mm -hmm. And each of the boys needs to know what their martyr did and be able to recite that's right. Uh, you know, the the way that person died defending mm-hmm. the homeland. Mm-hmm. This is actually, you know, a lot of the things that seem unbelievable about North Korea are pretty factually based. This is one element that, that I invented because, you know, in, in North Korea, everyone must do seven years of military service. Orphans, unfortunately, are a real problem in that society. There are a lot of people without anyone to care for them or advocate the, for them. The... In Korea as a whole, the idea of an orphanage is is different. It's not really a place where you get adopted. It's more like a place where you're warehoused until you're an adult. And and I did discover that the shame of having to put a, a child in an orphanage because you couldn't afford to care for him or her often led parents to keep the names of the children secret. And so so that the family shame wasn't reflected back upon them. So the children would go in without names and have to be renamed. And I thought in North Korea, this is something that they would use. They use every opportunity to further the aim of the regime. Right. 
And one of the things that happens to the boys that you describe in this mythical orphanage mm-hmm. is the adults coming in basically taking boys away for short periods or long periods of time mm-hmm. to do we do not know what. Right. Child, it's a source of child labor, which right. is, you know, sought to be thought to be a good use of of, you know, that unfortunate outcome there. So, you know, the first few pages of the book kind of capture the 90s, the sense of the Soviets cutting off aid in the early 90s, the death of Kim Il-sung and the shock to that country in 94, the floods that came in 95, due in a large degree through deforestation and the great famine that began, you know, in 96 that probably killed 10 percent of the population, uh, which would be over 2 million. And, you know, just to get those couple pages right, to get the city of Chongjin um, to get the industrial cannibalization going on, the fates of those people, was the product of, like I said, a couple of years of research. Mm-hmm. Well, it it comes across very uh, strongly on the page. What's fascinating to me is that when the character Zhong Du, mm-hmm. is that how you say it? Sure. Or you say it for me. I say Jun Do. Do, yeah. okay. Do, like Play-Doh. Well, you know, it's we're try- kind of, you know... Um, Pronunciation in Korean is not my expertise. If I'd have known I was going to spend six years writing a book set in Korea, the first thing I would have done is learn Korean. But that was a, that was a mistake of mine, I think. So anyway, the next thing in Jundo's life is to be recruited as what would they refer to as a tunnel soldier. That's right. Which is another very very interesting thing is these mm-hmm. miles and endless miles and miles and miles and miles of tunnels mm-hmm. under the entire country almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they uh, literally do military exercises in the dark. That's right. The North Koreans have prepared for the the staging of a possible invasion of the South uh, for decades. Uh, six of these tunnels have been discovered so far. They're large tunnels, many kilometers long. They go deep underground into the sovereign territory of, of the ROK of South Korea. And the tunnels are all designed to be 10,000 men an hour, which is really moving a lot of vehicles, men and material um, into another country. So they're, they're huge, they're long, and they have special crews who, who do the, build these tunnels and maintain them and prepare to go to war through them. And the tunnels are not straight. That's so that if right. Some, as you explained, if someone shoots a rocket or a bullet mm. – It'll hit a wall instead of you know continuing on for a long period right. of time. Right. There's there's no line of sight. Right. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, that certainly sets up the character for his next assignment, uh, which is one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard. Although I have read references to it in other sources about mm-hmm. the kidnappings of <clears throat> Japanese, usually at night. That's right. Off of beaches or lonely spots of land, mm-hmm. um, and very random at first. Mm-hmm. But then much more specific. They are sent for a, a, a specific opera singer or a specific architect mm-hmm. or a specific cook. Mm-hmm. This notion of the kidnappings um, is, is a bone of great uh, contention between you know, Japan and North Korea because the North is so hermetically sealed because they don't allow any cultural information about the outside world in in – that when they want agents to travel abroad and act normally, they have to kidnap citizens of those places and try to learn proper, you know, native behavior. It's such a, you know, counterintuitive thing, but th- but that's one of the side effects 
of being so closed off. In the 70s and 80s, um, uh, there were many such kidnappings. Uh, the North Koreans have admitted to 34, though some estimates are over over 100 people just from Japan uh, were plucked from beaches, from piers, uh, from islands, from their fishing boats by North Koreans who wanted language teachers, who wanted cultural intelligence, people to train their agents, you know, to <clears throat> move in a native way. And so they could infiltrate into so Japan. So they could later infiltrate, walk amongst, gather information. Um, the North Koreans are very paranoid about uh, Japan, especially since there are so many people of Korean descent there that they think can be used against themselves. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, why don't you read just this part of this uh, this chapter here? It's a couple paragraphs, but it's as the kidnappings are coming to an end. And he's been doing it for how many years now, would you say? Mm. Unknown. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. There were many kidnappings to come, years of them, in fact. There was the old woman they came upon in a tidal pool in Shino Island. Her pants were rolled up, and she peered into a camera mounted on three wooden legs. Her hair was gray and wild, and she went without protest in exchange for Dundo's portrait. There was the Japanese climatologist they discovered on an iceberg in the Tsuguro Strait. They plucked his scientific equipment and red kayak, too. There was a rice farmer, a jetty engineer, a woman who said she'd come down to the beach to drown herself. Then the kidnappings ended, as suddenly as they'd begun. Jundo was assigned a language school to spend a year learning English. He asked the control officer in Kyongsung if the new post was a reward for stopping a minister's son from defecting. The officer took Jundo's old military uniform, his liquor ration card, and a coupon book for prostitutes. When the officer saw the book was nearly full, he smiled. Sure, he said. Mm -hmm. So we transition to his next occupation. Yeah, I, I guess we get a lot of looks at, at this person's life. But, you know, orphans go into the worst assignments in the military. These portraits are all fairly accurate, if maybe an exaggeration to mash them all into the life of one character. Right. But I discovered so many fascinating real backdrops from North Korea. I wanted to give a reader a large sense of what that country was like, from life as an orphan, a soldier in the most remote places, to the lives of fishermen out on the sea who are notoriously conscripted to move um, counterfeit U.S. currency, heroin, rocket parts, to see how the military worked, the diplomats, and as we move closer to the capital, the elites, the military figures, the uh, cultural figures. And finally, we meet the black hole that warps the gravity of North Korea, Kim Jong-il himself. Right. I'm, I'm fascinated that you made him a character mm -hmm. in your book. Yeah. Well, you know, I wasn't going to at first because he's such a figure that has been blanked out in our culture. Or as, lampooned. As, as, a, as a figure of mockery. Right. And he does have his bouffant hair and his glasses and his elevator shoes, and he's brought that upon himself. But as a literary writer, you know, my job is to make characters whole, to give them weaknesses and strengths, to look inside them and to bring them to life as much as possible. And as I studied the culture and I delved deeper into the book, I realized that because the control over the population was total, 
And because one man managed that control, he alone was responsible for the fates singularly of mm-hmm. everyone there. Mm-hmm. And that if we were to understand that place, we would have to meet the great scriptwriter himself. Well, it's referred to often as the last Stalinist regime. Mm. And one of the things that makes that work, and, and you, you mentioned that when you know he kind of uh, the country made this is Kim Jong Il's father made you know approaches to Russia, mm-hmm. and then he got uh, distressed with where they were going and and how they were acting, and so he created something called you're going to have to say is it Juche 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 uh, Juche was. Um, a national policy, a philosophy, if you will, espoused by Kim Il-sung, who is right. the, the founding leader of, of the DPRK. Chuche translates roughly as rely on oneself. And it is this notion that – As a person and as a country. That's right. That um, they should um, turn to no one for protection. They should allow no one to trample on themselves. And also that you know, personally should your government not be able to provide for you that you would turn inward and find the inner substance to, you know, carry on and survive without, you know, looking for handouts. So it's also a a philosophy that seems ready-made for people who are going to face deprivations. Mm -hmm. Or who have to realize that they have a a child they are unable to care for, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier. That's right. And then, you know, and and shamefully Mm -hmm. unable to care for. When Kim Jong-il came to power, he couldn't refute his father's grand theory of Juche and he pays homage to it. I speak about Kim Jong-il as if he's alive because my character seems alive, you know. Um, But Kim Jong-il started a kind of a replacement policy called Sun-gun, which means military first. Hmm. And so while Juche is – lip service is paid to that, really the notion of why people suffer there is – has been replaced with an explanation that says we must be strong, our military must protect us, we must all sacrifice to feed them first. And Son Gun rules the day there. The military get everything and the people get very little. Mm-hmm. Well, your character has uh, is a fascinating uh, way to visit so many different parts of society and so many different activities that are going on. And uh, I'm going to have we'll read about the, a few of them, you know, sure. and share them with our listeners. One of them that happens is after he um, you know, does the kidnapping, as you mentioned, he goes mm-hmm. to the English language school mm-hmm. and he is taught by an African mm-hmm. who does not speak Korean mm-hmm. but uh, has lots of, of interrogatories, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he learns that mode quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't know what – you have no idea. There's a, pl- a greater plan apparently for everybody in that country or at least anyone who's on the radar and the plan for this – young individual was to put him on a fishing vessel, mm-hmm. but not as a fisherman. So can we read that little bit I'd here? Be, I'd be happy to. Okay. It's on page 40. Um, they're very proud of their language schools there. They fancy themselves as a very international society. Um, in Pyongyang, when I visited, they showed me endless language labs that were actually very active. And we saw people learning all the languages of the world they're very committed to translating the collected works of Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung into every language on the planet. And the propaganda there that people have to believe is that the notions of the dear and great leader are adhered to by all the peoples of the planet. And therefore, 
you know, language is very important. And for such an insular place, I was really struck by the degree to which people could communicate in many different languages. So it, it's, it might seem strange to us that, that a, a lowly character like John Doe would go to language school. But in fact, it's quite common and it is a reward for people who move up in the system. Mm-hmm. They're on a fishing vessel at this point. Right. They'd been in international waters for several days now. Their North Korean flag lowered so as not to invite trouble. First, they chased deep-running mackerel and then schools of jittery bonito that surfaced in brief patches of sun. Now they were after sharks. All night, the Junma had long lined for them at the edge of the trench, and at daybreak, Jundo could hear above him the grinding of the witch the winch and the slapping of the sharks as they cleared the water and struck the hull. From sunset to sunrise, Jundo monitored the usual transmissions. Fishing captains mostly, the ferry from Uichi to Vladivostok, even the nightly check-in of two American women rowing around the world. One rowed all night, the other all day, ruining the crew's theory that they'd made their way to the East Sea for the purpose of having girl sex. Hidden inside... The Junma's rigging and booms was a strong array antenna, and above the helm was a directional antenna that could turn 360 degrees. The U.S. and Japan and South Korea all encrypted their military transmissions, which sounded only like squeals and bleats. But how much squeal and where and when seemed really important to Pyongyang. As long as he documented that, he could listen to whatever he liked. It was clear the crew didn't like having him aboard. He had an orphan's name, and all night he clacked away on his typewriter down there in the dark. It was as if having a person aboard whose job it was to perceive and record threats made the crew, young men from the port of Kinji, sniff the air for danger as well. And then there was the captain. He had reason to be wary, and each time Jun Do made him change course to track down an unusual sign, it was all he could do to contain his anger at the ill luck of having <clears throat> a listening officer posted to his fishing ship. Only when Jun Do started relating to the crew the updates of the two American girls rowing around the world did they begin to warm to him. When Jun Do had filled out his daily requisition of military soundings, he roamed the spectrum. The lepers sent out broadcasts, as did the blind, and the families of inmates imprisoned in Manila who broadcast news into the prisons. All day the families would line up to speak of report cards, baby teeth, and new job prospects. There was Dr. Rendezvous, a Brit who broadcast his erotic dreams every day, along with the coordinates of where his sailboat would be anchored next. There was a station in Okinawa that broadcast portraits of families that U.S. servicemen refused to claim. Once a day, the Chinese broadcast prisoner confessions, and it didn't matter that the confessions were forced false, and in a language he didn't understand, Jundo could barely make it through them. And then there came that girl who rode in the dark. Each night she paused to relay her coordinates, how her body was performing, and the atmospheric conditions. Often she noted things, the outlines of birds migrating at night, a whale shark seining for crew for krill off her bow. She had, she said, a growing ability to dream while she rode. What it was about, what was it about English speakers 
that allowed them to talk into transmitters as if the sky were a diary. If Koreans spoke this way, maybe they'd make more sense to Jundo. Maybe he'd understand why some people accepted their fates while others didn't. He might know why people sometimes scoured all the orphanages, looking for one particular child when any child would do, when there were perfectly good children everywhere. He'd know why all the fishermen on the Junma had their wives' portraits tattooed on their chests, while he was a man who wore headphones in the dark of a fish hold on a boat that was 27 days at sea a month. Amazing. Thank when you. I read that first part, and I came across these, you know, the women rowers mm -hmm. and the conversations that he catches glimpses of and the sharks, you know, carcasses whapping against the side of the ship and uh, so much more detail. It just, it's just so rich. And I began to wonder at that point, um, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. And is this going to be important? Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, of course, all those things are important. That's right. Um, you know, my mind is pretty good at Rubik's Cubing plots together. And, <laughs> you know, I try to not throw anything in there for, you know, just tour guiding around. The sharks are going to come back. The tattoos are going to come back. Those girl rowers you don't know are going to play an important role in the second half of the book. That all these little things, his relationship to the captain, we're going to see him again. Um, they're all going to add up and hopefully fit together in a way that has a big effect. It does. Mm -hmm. I, will, I'm, I must – I'm going to credit you with having the book not just for this year but for last year as well that I could not put down. Oh, and that's I wonderful to hear. And I read tremendous – you know, I mean mm -hmm. for this show and, and personally too. Mm -hmm. And I was just captivated. Mm -hmm. I kept saying, oh my gosh. Oh my god, Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Well, I do love a book that moves, that has momentum and inertia, that shows us new things – that has, that has uh, a sense of character in peril, who's trapped, he must make choices. Um, and I love the feeling of, when I read, letting go in confidence that a large consciousness is at work that's going to pull everything together. That's a joy to me. Mm -hmm. That sense of knowing there's an inevitability to things, even as it surprises you along the way. That's the twin joy of reading for me. You are listening to Word by Word on KRCB-FM, where tonight's conversation is with the Stanford creative writing professor Adam Johnson about his Pulitzer Prize-winning North Korean-based novel, The Orphan Master's Son. So stay tuned as Adam explains how he created his richly detailed prize winner right here on KRCB-FM. So as you put this together, did you have a chart on the wall or keep it in your head or what? Actually, you know, as the book progresses, um, different voices enter. There's turns out to be there's three voices. Um, they're telling one objective story of our character Jundo and what happens to him. Then we meet a new voice in the second half of the book. He is an interrogator. After Jundo's story is played out, who's trying to figure out exactly what happened. So he can write a biography. So he can write a biography. And finally, after he's done with his report, there's the state propaganda version that twists everything we've already seen to, you know, benefit the state. And the maybe confusing part at first of the second part of the book is that these three voices all go concurrently, even though they exist at different times. But it's a... 
As I read the testimonies of defectors, and I read lots and lots of them, people who'd made it out of, of North Korea. Um, where, did, where did you find those? Oh, there are lots of them, lots of them online. We have actually a couple great sources of people who've made it out of, of gulags. The American State Department has a really wonderful website with lots of satellite maps, explanations of all the camps. And the South Koreans publish a ton of material. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a facility in South Korea called Hanawon. And after people defect and make it to South Korea um, – and to get out of North Korea is very difficult. You've got to cross the DMZ, which is almost impossible. So people go north through mountains. It's a mountainous country. They've got to get across the Yalu or the Tumen River, which at times is easy to cross if it's frozen or shallow. Other times it's quite dangerous. Once you're in southern China, you can easily become enslaved because China has a repatriation agreement with North Korea. Mm. And if a farmer discovers a a young escapee on on his property – you know, he knows that he can make one phone call and the authorities will take her back uh, to be placed in prison. And so it's easy to become slave labor, to be exploited, to become a farmer's wife. To finally make it to the South, most people have to go all the way to Thailand, which mm. has an agreement with the South. Last year, in 2000, actually, I think it's 2010, uh, 6,344 people made it to the South. And in the north, people rarely defect from Pyongyang. If you live in the capital, you're one of the top few percent of the nation. You're not going to starve. You're going to have a decent government job, some modicum of electricity every day, some modern conveniences. But if you're from the provinces, meaning all the rest of the country, um, you might starve. You you might face – you know. Fewer commodities, less heating fuel, less timber, extra work, less medical care. Life there is much harder and that's why people defect from those places. And when they come to Hanawon in South Korea, there's a little story that's taken of all of them based on interviews. Mm -hmm. And we have a large portrait of how much they eat, how much they work, what their lives are like and and the dangers they faced in escaping. It's – Pyongyang, that's the great mystery to us because people don't defect there because life is good. We don't really – Or relatively good. As far as they know, it's the best in the world. Um, So that portrait is quite murky and it used – I had to use fewer sources to to draw a portrait of that place and I had to use more imagination. Hmm. Well, you describe one part in the second part of the book where there's this – quite lovely home on the top of a hill mm-hmm. above Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. And um, it certainly seemed real to me. Yes, that's Mount Taesong. It's just uh, outside of Pyongyang on you know, the, the Taedong River. And it's a very sacred place to the Koreans. Um, here is where they have the Revolutionary Martyr Cemetery, a place of great honor. They have their zoo. They have like a fun park for children. They have plants there that quite sacred called Kim Jong-gilia and Kim Il-sungia and that's where their hothouses are and some of the um, oh, high-ranking officials have homes at the top on Mount Jujak mm-hmm. and um, so I, I, I wanted to get a look at every part of Pyongyang you know and this place with a view 
down into the valley, you know, allowed me to constantly regard the capital of that nation. And what what happens up there on top of that hill is all the sounds that come up, mm-hmm. the smells that come up. That's right. Right. Yes. That is a fascinating book. Let's continue on with our main character, though, because mm-hmm. we need we need to know what's going to happen to him next. He he's uh, he's on the ship, and uh, he becomes a hero to the nation in the most unlikely way, mm-hmm. because the ship is boarded. I'm going to kind of you know try to make sure. this a little shorter, and you could fill in. The ship is boarded by an by American naval ship mm-hmm. and in, in explored mm-hmm. for potential contraband or so whatever. And um, as they're leaving, one of the officers hands his business card mm-hmm. to uh, a member of the crew. And um, later on, one of the crew members, the second mate, takes the raft that's been left behind by the – because there's no lifeboats on this ship. That's right. They're called escape boats there. That's right. (laughs) Well, exactly. Well, anyway, he uses that to escape somewhere, some Mm -hmm. unknown place, we assume heading south to Mm -hmm. Korea. And uh, so the crew has to come up with a story. So what story do Mm -hmm. they invent? This is, you know, the idea of a different kind of storytelling was one of the things that drew me into the material of North Korea. In America, our stories are – we all accept the notion that we're individuals. Our job is to find our best possible selves, to get in talk, contact with our inner selves. In the stories we tell each other and in the lives we lead, we're all the central characters in our own lives. Mm-hmm. We've got to discover our needs and yearnings. We need to move forward to attain those things and to become our better selves. We have to overcome obstacles and conflict. And in the end, we grow and change and discover. In North Korea, however, stories work differently. There's a national story. It's written by the regime, and it's approved by the Kims, and they're fine-tuning it through propaganda all the time. But in this story, there's one central character, Kim Jong-il in my book, Kim Jong-un now in The Nation, and everyone else in that country is a secondary character. They're given a role to play, and the defectors testify to the ways in which people come into the schools, give aptitude tests, and decide, oh, she's going to be an accordionist. He's going to become a fisherman. And your fates are set at an early age, and you're given a role. And in that world, your own thoughts and desires, your own needs and communications, revealing yourself, is all contrary to survival. It goes against playing this role properly, and you must play your role well to survive. So um, my character starts off as the perfect North Korean. He does what he's told, when he's told, even if it's ugly and grim. He even has chances to defect, and he doesn't take them. But as he meets Americans, as he listens to the broadcasts from other nations that, that I read in that excerpt, he begins to think there's a different way to live in this life, that you could become yourself and that going on that search for inner meaning is important. And so really this book is about him going from a North Korean character, which is probably quite foreign to a Western reader, to a character that we would recognize who for love, for self-definition, who for freedom takes on a grand improvisational act to become uh, the self he wants to be. And there's kind of a trial run, you know, when he meets the Americans and when a 
one of his crew members defects, they have to try to find a story, uh, an excuse for this, that will fit within the role of North Koreans as being loyal, dedicated, and heroic. And uh, that involves um, making a cover story that he was bit by a shark, uh, killed by a shark. And our hero uh, in his story, um, which depicts him attempting to rescue the guy, um, all they need is some evidence of a shark bite. And so it sounds really ludicrous, Gil, as I, as I no, play no, it out no, now. Well, it doesn't work. read that way. But basically they winch one of the sharks up that's mm-hmm. been caught earlier and latch it onto this man. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the, I mean by, by his teeth. That's right. Yeah. And it's the scars that prove that, you know, that this man disappeared not through defection um, but through an attack and that our, our, our character becomes – uh, declared a hero because of this of this act. It's a story that North Korea likes, that it uses. It becomes a propaganda story. He becomes paraded around. Our, our hero gets a medal and that moves him into another realm where when, when a delegation of, a, of North Koreans travel to America to meet with a couple American diplomats, they bring this hero along. Because he speaks English. Because he speaks English. Um, because he's more worldly than than most North Koreans, and because he has this story of heroism um, uh, to boast of, and part of the heroic story is a shameful story about the Americans that they've concocted, and they want to use this story there. But it's it, it's about a hundred or a hundred and twenty five pages in that uh, that are characters who are North Korean who've been in their milieu in this strange context that the reader slowly orients to. They travel to America. And I, re- I remember writing these scenes, Gil, in which um, I had completely immersed myself in the North Korean perspective. And when I went to my own country, America, it seemed alien and foreign and strange. Well, you go to Texas, which may be all those well, things. Sure. We, we go to Texas and we see the Texan senator and his entourage try to be folksy, to put the North Koreans at ease, to make them comfortable, feel down homey. So they pick the North Koreans up from the airport in classic American cars, an old Thunderbird and a Mustang. And right away, the North Koreans are deeply insulted because a car of quality where they're from is a black Mercedes. They're shown how to cut brush and how to go fishing and shoot guns in a kind of little Texas sideshow. Um, But even when they're given a barbecue in their honor, the idea that, that these men in suits from North Korea would sit outside in the sun like peasants at wooden picnic benches that were dirty and that they would eat food with their hands in the presence of dogs is the greatest insult that could ever be done to them. And the Americans can't see any of this, of course. And that my own country seemed foreign gave me great faith that maybe I was pulling the book off. It gave me a lot of energy uh, to move forward. (laughs) Well, at the same time, Mm -hmm. the Koreans are playing the Americans. That's right, yes. Because they have a cooler with them. Mm-hmm. With a piece of tiger's meat in it, yes, which they offer as a great delicacy, and mm-hmm. say, "Why don't you cook this and serve it?" That's right. This is um, something in my research. I, I, I found um, an episode of um, the Hunter in Burma, 
giving a gift to Kim Jong-il. It was in one of the propaganda announcements of of tiger meat, mm. you know, which to the rest of the world is really shocking that this endangered species would be eaten um, and would be a sign of, I don't know, respect. or something? Something. Yeah. Uh, but it, horrifying to us, but uh, obviously it, it happens over there. So the North Koreans try to put the Americans off balance. They know that the Americans are going to be horrified to receive a gift of tiger meat. So they really just bring some flank steak and tell them it's tiger and um, you know, give the Americans moral high ground to begin the negotiations. Right. Well, the experience in Texas is quite amazing. Um, when he goes home, he's asked – he's debriefed I guess you would call it, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talks about is those things you've mentioned about have forced to eat outside and mm-hmm. and uh, ride in ancient cars and shoot weapons that may blow up as you use them mm-hmm. and sleep with dogs. Sleep with dogs. So tell me about dogs in North Korea. Well, there are, of course, dogs in North Korea. Um, they're illegal in the capital. The capital is a show place. Uh, everyone's relatively handsome, relatively young in general. There are, I saw no handicapped people there in any way. If you have something that's perceived as you know a flaw or a defect um, there, you're sent to live other places. And I I asked our minders where the handicapped people were, and she she feigned our headminder feigned to not know what I was talking about. But if you're in the capital, it's a place of beautiful, um, successful people, and so. Uh, they keep it free of dogs so that it doesn't look um, rural and provincial. There are six dogs in Pyongyang. Uh, they were the gift from the king of Swaziland to Kim mm-hmm. Jong-il. Mm-hmm. And they live in the central zoo, uh, which I did not visit, but I'm told is a pretty grim place. Um, and supposedly they're fed a diet of uh, soft tomatoes and cabbage mm-hmm. to lessen their aggressive nature. Now, when I was out in the countryside near the Myoyang Mountains, uh, I saw dog. I saw dogs. I saw strays roaming the streets of you know Kaesong, you know, in the south. Um, in you know, I read reports of in other places in North Korea. There are two kinds of dogs: so dogs that are like pets and uh, watchdogs and family animals, and they have a special breed that they you know breed for consumption, mm-hmm. you know, for protein. Right. Well, there's a real problem when they come back from Texas because they, a dog comes along too as a special gift from the senator to the great leader. That's right. They do bring a puppy back to North Korea, which I didn't know that would turn out to be a kind of nice plot plot device that I could use <laughs> later. Um, that dog makes a wonderful, wonderful late appearance in the book. Um, but, you know, the truth is that – People who have too much exposure to the outside world in North Korea can be seen as being tainted. And there's a notion there of Sungbun, not Songun, which I mentioned earlier, but Mm -hmm. Sungbun. And this is kind of a rating or a concept of how loyal you are in your family and how revolutionary your spirit is. And there are a lot of examples of people who've just been exposed to too much foreign culture. They become a threat to the state in that they might pass on news or word or portraits of the outside world and get other people riled up about about you know the truth behind the propaganda they hear. And a lot of people go into the gulags. 
like the North Korean soccer team famously all went into the gulag, even though they tried their best. In, been, at the Olympics. It was, uh, the, international it, it was like a European World yeah. Cup okay. and they'd lost. Um, they'd also supposedly gotten drunk afterwards and behaved badly. So no one knows exactly what. But they'd been made soccer players by the state. Mm-hmm. They'd performed to the best of their ability and they all went into the gulag. Well, the part in the gulag is probably the most – Shuddering, causing, shudder causing, is that a way to call it? Sure. Uh, part of the book. Um, I know there are other, you know, famous books about gulags and mm-hmm. in, um, in different parts of the world. Um, but there's one section here um, where, where Jean Doe is, gets introduced to the place. So if you could mm-hmm. read, there's a little bit about a page here sure. and you understand why I want you to. And I and I, I will warn our listeners that this is a little grim. I, you know, I read a lot about you know gulag narratives, the Quanli so system as they're called there, and they're really very sinister places. If you're deemed irredeemable, you don't get a sentence or a trial. You don't ever come out. You're worked to death. And there are several prisons like that. Um, you know, I really couldn't put much of that material in this book because it was just too overpowering probably but there are moments in which I feel a duty to give a portrait to the reader of some of the grim realities of this place Um, here he's being introduced uh, to the prison he's going to go Jundo took a crate and met the medic at the bedside of a woman who had her jaw tied shut with strips of cloth that circled her head One medic began unlacing her shoes, which were just rotten tire treads wrapped with wire. The other began unwrapping tubing and intravenous lines, all precious medical supplies. Jundo touched the woman's skin, which was cool. I think we're too late, he told them. The medics ignored them. They ran each line into a vein on the tops of her feet, then attached two empty blood bags. The old photographer appeared with her camera. She called to the guard for the woman's name, and when he told her, the photographer wrote it on a gray slate and placed it on the woman's chest. Then the photographer unwound the strips of cloth from the woman's hand. When the photographer removed the woman's cap, most of her hair came off with it, lining it with a black swirl. Here, she said, slipping the cap into Jundo's hand. Take it. The cap looked heavy with ground-in grease. Jundo hesitated. Don't you know who I am? The old photographer asked. I'm Mungnon. I take the pictures of all who arrive and depart from this place. She shook the cap insistently. It's wool. You'll need it. Jundo pocketed the cap as a way to shut her up, to stop her and her crazy talk. When Mung Nan took the woman's picture, the flash awakened her for a moment. She reached from the cot to Jundo's wrist and clenched it. In her eyes was a very clear desire to take him with her. The medics yelled at Jundo to lift the head of the cot. When he did so, they kicked the crate underneath, and soon the floor, the four blood bags, were filling nicely. Jundo said to the medics, "'We better work fast. It's getting dark, and the driver said he doesn't have headlights.' The medics ignored him. The next person was a teenager, his chest cool and pale blue. His eyes were drawn so that they turned with labor in increments. One of his arms hung off the cot, outstretched to the rough-hewn floorboards. "'What's your name?' Mungnan asked him. His mouth kept making a motion as though he was trying to wet his lips before speaking. 
but the words never came. Soft and tender, with the voice of a mother, she whispered to the dying boy. Close your eyes, she said, and when he did, she snapped a photo. The medics used the strips of medical tape to secure the bloodlines, and the process repeated itself. Jundo lifted the cot and slid the next crate under it, and the boy's head gently lolled, and then Jundo was carrying the warm bags to the cooler. The life of the boy, the true life of him, had literally drained warm into these bags that Jundo held, and it was like the boy was still alive in the bags until Jundo personally snuffed him by dropping them into the ice water. For some reason, he expected the warm bags to blood to float, but they sank to the bottom. There's something about reading about, you know, how they were catching sharks and cutting off the fins mm -hmm. and selling them to the Chinese, which is reprehensible as it is. But when you read this part and you realize that they're dealing in human blood mm -hmm. and body parts mm -hmm. uh, in international trafficking, mm -hmm. um, and that's not the only thing that North Korea does that mm -hmm. is, you know, outside of what I guess we would our, with our Western eyes think was um, legitimate. Right, right. Well, the like I say, reading of the amputations, of forced abortions, of the things that take place in these camps, the starvation, the executions, it was very difficult going. There's a book coming out uh, that I'll plug uh, next month from Viking, um, and it's the story of Shin Dong-hook. Um, it's uh, one of the grimmer stories you'll ever read concerning humanity that you could imagine. It's written by a Washington Post reporter named Blaine Harden. And it's the story of, of Shin, who was born in a camp, Camp um, 1418. The camp straddles the Taedong River. 18 is a lighter camp. It's a place where you'll eventually get out. You could be redeemable if you worked hard enough and long enough. You could be returned to society. But if you go across the river to Camp 14, those are the irredeemables. It's there that everyone is going to work until they die. Shin's father was kind of a trustee, which means he, he collaborated with the guards and helped the guards. And as a reward, he was given a wife and the ability to have children, one of the rarest instances ever of this in you know, a Kwan Lee So camp. And um, Shin and his brother grew up, and I think in America – we're drawn to Sophie's Choice-like stories sometimes in our movies, in our literature, in our news stories. Impossible decisions that human beings have to face, I think, evoke in us an inner questioning about what we would do with an impossible situation. But I feel that North Koreans, based on my research, all at some point in their lives must face an impossible decision to report someone else to be denounced or to denounce, to choose between a child who can eat and a child who can't, to have to face a forced marriage or et cetera. Right. And, you know, in this camp, Shin was 14 and he was weak and hungry and his parents decided to escape with his brother who was older and they thought he was just a liability, that he just couldn't keep up with them. So they left without him. And... They didn't make it, and Shin saw them captured and returned, and he was forced to bear witness in their executions. Often everyone in a camp must participate in an execution, even if in a symbolic way. 
and he lived there another 10 years. He was tortured and burned um, before he eventually escaped. And in a Kwan Lee So camp, there's no indoctrination. No one tells you who Kim Jong-il is or Kim Il-sung. They don't teach you Juche theory or Songun theory because you're disposable mm -hmm. and you're never going to get out. And you're controlled through physical means instead of psychological means. So he managed to escape. He didn't know he was wearing a haircut that marked him his whole life as a prisoner. Mm. He was really in Plato's allegory of the cave where survival was everything and no one had anything to live for. And that he managed to get out of Camp 14, then out of North Korea, then out of China, and to give us the rarest portrait of deprivation on earth is uh, a, a feat that no one else has managed to do. And it's, it's these human stories that I felt I had to capture to some degree in the book. Well, you've done a marvelous job with it. It's essentially two books, wouldn't you say? Mm. Or at least you divide it into two books. But, of course, what we find out is the person in the second book has a very strong connection. <laughs> sure. a good way to put it? <laughs> no with, spoilers. With, yeah. yeah, with the first book. And uh, we find out uh, parts of the, the first person's history in the second mm. book because uh, under the interrogation techniques. Mm -hmm. the, uh, it is a, a fascinatingly uh, – it's like – I know you write science fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's like another science fiction world, but it's on this planet today. That's right. No need to invent it. No. Well, I want to thank you extremely much for coming and sharing your time with us. Adam, you have anything to say to our, to our listeners who are wannabe writers or, or are writers? Mm. Well, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a worthwhile calling. I think telling stories is really important. I think when people leave North Korea, they have to learn to tell their stories. They've been taught their whole lives not to have an individual voice. And we live in a land with art and with books where we can decide to be artists and we can tell stories that matter. Um, I also you know, teach my students that, uh, that the odds that you're going to be a great storyteller and that you're going to have a great story to tell are rare. And a lot of great storytellers... Um, don't climb Mount Everest or change the world. But when we meet people who, who do have stories that matter, who cannot for whatever reason tell their own, often because they're tra traumatized, that you maybe have a duty to help other people get important stories into the world. And I felt that obligation a great deal in this book. Again, this is Adam Johnson. Thank you for The Orphan Master's Son. My pleasure. You have been listening to Word by Word on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM where tonight's fascinating conversation was with the Stanford creative writing professor Adam Johnson about his Pulitzer Prize-winning North Korean-based novel, The Orphan Master's Son. Our studio engineer is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune in to our next Word by Word broadcast at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, June 5th, when our guests will be two local entrepreneurs and writers. Bonnie Harvey, who is the co-founder and vice president of Barefoot Sellers for 20 years and is the co-author of the business adventure story, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand, and Rebecca Rosenberg, co-owner of Sonoma Lavender and co-author of the beautiful book Lavender Fields of America, A New Crop of American Farmer. Until then, let's celebrate the coming of May with a Maypole chant from Anne O'Brien. Weave, spin, dance your cares away. A spirit fires alive to your entrancing. Weave, spin, dance into the May. 
the earth and sky are wed as you are dancing.